0: Thank you, Alicia, and uh, for leading us so well here this morning. All right. Well, guys, welcome to GPC. <laughs> welcome to Life Together and all the ups and downs that it brings. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, I've learned this week that there are many who listen online to these uh, messages that we share here, so those online listening now, thank you for listening. Uh, It seems weird to address you sitting in front of me that way, but nonetheless, you should know that there's an online audience, and we're grateful to you all for for tuning in. Um, I'm going to track us now, move us right into the series that we have been on, and move us in our mind and our thinking toward uh, the scriptures again this morning. Um, keeping in our heart all that is happening this morning. Um, We are are now in the fourth part of what is a seven-part, excuse me, eight-part series we're calling Friend of Sinners. I'm grateful to Kevin for taking last week and Chuck for the week before. And this dovetails, uh, I don't know how it can't dovetail into all that we're dealing with on a weekly basis uh, and all the stuff of life. So this this is coming right out of Uh, you know, right into the middle of how we even make decisions, how we function, how we live, how we survive, and all that. So in this morning, um, I I want to um, step into this message by kind of reasoning with you for a minute, okay? I want to speak to the idea of reason and what is reasonable in our experiences. Let me explain it this way. We tend to think that reasonable Thinking almost always leads to success. Let me flesh this out. If you're raising small children you will tell them, you may not use the word reasonable, but you will tell them how much dessert they can have. Because it's reasonable to have maybe one or two cookies. It's unreasonable to have 15 cookies after dinner. If you're raising kids, it's reasonable to share the toy and take turns. It's unreasonable to grab it and hold it and have it forever. Like That's just not reasonable. It's reasonable as you're growing up to spend a little bit of time on your hobbies, but not to quit your job and take on your hobbies full time. Usually. Usually. Usually not reasonable. It's Reasonable in your whatever in your uh, your your school environment to actually get your work done, and it's unreasonable to just quit that and push that out and not even bother doing that. It's unreasonable to think that you're going to do awesome in a 15-page paper when you write it the night before. It's unreasonable. We generally tend to think that reasonable thinking almost always, almost always leads to success. Now, with that being said, I think that's generally true. With that being said, this is also true. I think we rarely associate what's most reasonable with what's most extreme. So when we compare what's extreme with what's reasonable, generally we say, no, what's most extreme is generally not most reasonable. Case in point. If I told you, because it's daylight savings today, I'm going to speak for two hours this morning instead of about 30, 35 minutes. Now, what sounds more reasonable to you? Okay, now don't answer that out loud, okay? We tend to associate what's most reasonable with what is least extreme. We don't associate what's most reasonable with what is most extreme. We just generally don't do that. Now, however, however, every now and then, what's most extreme is also most reasonable. Every now and then, what is most extreme is also most reasonable. For example... When you asked your girl to marry you, were you extreme or moderate? Don't answer that out loud. <laughs> if you ever needed to quit a habit that dogged you for a long time, was it worth going to extremes to quit that? If you ever had to, to quit a job that was just churning you up inside or out and you just had to move on and there wasn't really a plan, you just did something that was kind of extreme, but it actually was The most reasonable thing to do. There are times when the most reasonable thing to do is also the most extreme thing to do. Now here's how this works. Here's how this plays for us. Here's what I'd like to suggest. That living within reasonable extremes keeps us alive. I'm not going to eat 15 cookies after dinner. Just not reasonable. I'm not gonna stay up all night, even though I might get more done for a little while. I just it's not reasonable. I live within extremes that keeps me alive. But pushing to the extreme can give us life. Pushing to the extreme can give you and can give me a glimpse of life, something life-giving, like, oh, I should have quit that a while ago. Ooh, I should have thought about my faith that way ooh, if only I would have... These moments happen often on retreats or when we're going through deep trials. It's like, uh, why didn't I do what I thought was more extreme before? Living within extremes keeps me alive, but pushing to the extreme can give us life. Okay, that, That's how these things work, I think. And I want to take you to a passage in Scripture where Jesus plays with us a little bit, and he's going to challenge us to think about reason and what's most reasonable, what's maybe conservative, what's moderate, and put right in the face of that, this extreme example, and challenge us to say, wait a minute, what if what's most reasonable is actually also most extreme? And that is a difficult proposition. So with that as background, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5 is where we are going to be. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is um, the third Uh, letter in the New Testament, so it's kind of in the right two-thirds of your Bible, Luke chapter 5. Pastor Kevin finished up with Luke 4 last week. We're going to jump right into Luke 5. and We're going to pick up a story um, that's a pretty fun story. If you've been in church before, you're going to know this story, and if you haven't, I'm looking forward to telling you the story. Even if you have been in church, I think you're going to see it. I hope you'll see it in maybe a fresh way this morning, okay? So Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible near you, that is our gift to you this morning. We really want you to take it with you and read it, all right? Because we think the scriptures help us see God, and they can help you in your day, in your life, okay? So here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 5. Those of you who have been here before know that I'm, I, it's kind of like stop and go traffic with me on this. I, I, we get into the text, we stop, then I comment on it and go back in, and, you know, that kind of thing. So we're going to do that again this morning, All right. So Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now let's pause it right there to know what's going on. Picture the scene. I want you to get into the scene. One day by the lake of Galilee or Gennesaret, there are people gathered around Jesus to hear what he's saying. Now, I find this interesting. Do you think what Jesus had to say was good? Do you think his teaching was worth writing down? (laughs) Probably. But this is what Luke ignores. He doesn't ignore. He doesn't tell us the content of Jesus' teaching. He just happens to say, "Oh yeah, by the way, Jesus was teaching. He's probably pretty good. Probably pretty sharp." But we don't even know what he's saying. And a whole bunch of people were gathered around to hear him. So here's the scene: the Lake of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret is there. You know, it it, it goes further than our eye can see. There are people gathered around, kind of pressing in onto this lakefront. And on the at the same time, there are fishermen who had been fishing most of the early hours of the morning, who are off kind of to the side with one or two boats, maybe one still in the water, one off, maybe, I don't know. And they're over there and they're tending to their nets. Verse 2, at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. This is, by the way, a normal thing and a kind of, annoying thing for fishermen to do but every day if you're a fisherman in this time every day you wash the nets if you don't wash them and then let them dry and then you fold them if you don't do all that they rot and then you don't have a job your family doesn't eat so you know what wash the nets not just a job for the intern everybody does it wash the nets it takes a little while you wash the nets fishing in this day you need to understand how this worked these boats um, our best archaeological evidence on these boats, by the way, say that they are 26 and a half feet long. Now, those of you who are have any kind of construction background, immediately you're picturing that. The rest of us are just like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet deep. Got that you already kind of get that in your brain, some of you others are like yeah, that 's neat okay, so that 's the way it is there are again, our best archaeological evidence says there 's a place for a sail on that boat, and there 's also a place for four like row men and a tiller man on that boat. That boat can handle um, about one ton of weight, about one ton of weight on average, which is a pretty big payload for a boat that size um, that can have you know about five crew and their Their catch for the day, or it can be, you know, five crew and maybe up to maybe ten passengers, something in that range is is what we're looking at. So we have two boats that are of decent size that can carry a decent amount of material, a decent amount of payload that are sitting there. One is owned by Simon, and he has a bunch of partners there, and he asks them to put out to the shore. The way that this works is um, the Roman. Um, government essentially was in control at the time and so in order to pay your taxes to Rome fishermen like Simon and others would gather together people around them to function as business partners. And it would be an easier tax burden if you can share that among your guild or your group, and that's what they did. So you have these fisher men who are associated with each other because of um, economic and political reasons. They're working together to make this easier, and they've got two boats and a bunch of nets, and they're kind of getting that taken care of. The way fishing would have worked is at night, usually the wee hours of the morning, these fishermen get up, and they don't have sonar, probably not at that point yet. They go out onto the lake, and they actually would have, imagine this, it kind of might take you into the movies, I don't know, maybe a Lord of the Rings kind of feel or something. They actually would have like a blazing torch on the front of their boat as they go forward to see what they're looking for. And they might see fish. And we were talking about just seeing the fish right here. That's why they have to go out at night, because the heat from the sun would would push the fish further. They don't know where to throw their nets in the large Sea of Galilee unless they can see the fish. And so the only way to do that is to go out when it's cooler, but I have to have a blazing torch to light my way. So that's what they did. And when the fish are visible, then one of two things happen. One, they throw the spear in, if they have that, a bigger fish, or two, they chuck the net in and hope that they get the fish. Just the way it works. So on, on repeat, all night, rowing along, rowing along, blazing torch, I see a fish, throw it in, miss ah, missed that one. You know, over and over and over and over and over again. And so they come in, and here they are, and they don't have anything. But that's the way it goes with fishermen, right? That's the way it is. Not that they were bad fishermen, just the way it goes. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would choose to build his kingdom on the backs of men like this? who were resolute, who are ruddy, strong, went out no matter what the weather was because they had to, can handle disappointment and can do their job and keep going back. These are the character of the people that Jesus built the kingdom of God upon. So here's Jesus teaching, and he sees these fishermen cleaning their nets. And verse 4, when he is finished speaking, Jesus says to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. This is unreasonable. Like, we just finished cleaning the nets, Jesus. Like, now's really not a good time. We've done this before, this doesn't make a lot of sense to do this. Go fishing again, nothing was caught. Daylight is here, we're done cleaning our supplies, and you want us to go again. This puts Simon in an interesting position. Because remember, Jesus is teaching with a large crowd there. And he says, apparently in the hearing of enough people to Simon, go fishing. So what should Simon do? Here's what he says. Master, verse 5, we've worked hard all night, and you weren't here, we weren't. and haven't caught anything. Now, you ever um, husbands If your wife ever told you, "Hey, do you mind like taking the trash out now?" And you use your first reaction is, "Hey, yeah, I'm going to get to that just like a t- couple minutes." And she's still looking at you. Then you're like, you know what? I'm I'll do that right now. I'll do that right now. You got it. And this is almost, I think, is what Simon is going through. Because check out what he says. He's like, hey, we've worked on all that and i am caught anything. You're still looking at me. Okay. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. You got it. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. This is an honor-shame culture, right? In other words, there's great. Uh, Shame that could come on simon if he says to the master teacher. No, I don't think so At the same time this puts all of the responsibility on jesus not simon Like jesus this is your idea your dumb idea and you've got all the crowds here. So you're telling me to do it. I mean I, I Is simon expecting to catch anything and I would say no Not at all and he's not expecting to catch anything But because Jesus says so, and because he has nothing to lose, because it's Jesus' idea, he has everything to lose if he doesn't do it, because he'll lose honor in that culture, he goes out fishing. Verse 6. So when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, which means that this is not normal. Because if their nets were breaking on this, they would have made stronger nets. You never catch this many fish at one time. This is, this is way too big for these nets. Verse 7, So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them because they weren't expecting to catch anything. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Both boats so full they began to sink. If our archaeology is right, we have over two tons of payload now on these boats people included. I'm not a fisherman, but that seems like a lot to catch in the daytime. Enough that the boats would sink. Again, Simon wasn't expecting anything because he had to call his friends. Hey guys, come out. This isn't what I expected. I wasn't planning to have this work, but help me. We are sinking, and then you come, and now we're both sinking. And this is what the text reads. They're both sinking. Again, if this was normal, they would have made bigger boats. This wasn't normal. If this was normal, they would have made better nets. This wasn't normal. This is almost like you getting your paycheck and it's three times bigger than it ever has been before. You're like, wait, what? This is a huge, huge payday. For these fishermen. Huge payday. They're going to have to pay their taxes to Caesar, but whatever. This is a huge payday for them. What a great, great thing for them. And so, look what happens next. So intriguing. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Thank you for the fish. This will pay for months for my family. He says... "'Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man.'" Look, He falls to Jesus' knees. you got to get in the moment. Jesus is on the boat. Simon's on the boat. There's fish everywhere. He slops down in the middle of fish that are flopping all around, and he says, "'Not thank you for the fish,' because Simon knows this this ain't about fish. This never was about fish. He says, "'Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man.'" You know what Simon realizes in a minute? I'm in the presence of someone who can peer deep into my soul and knows who I am. And I have been found out. If he can do this, he knows me. And he tries to get ahead of it and says... Jesus I'm sorry I'm a sinful man like go away from me I can't be in your presence and I'm telling you some of us have a view of God like that don't we we're kind of afraid of all that God knows and Jesus doesn't come that way if John 3 16 and 17 were written this would have been a great time for Jesus to quote that but you know that 16 at least for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting or eternal life but John 317 says for god didn't send his son into the world to condemn people like simon in that moment he didn't send jesus to condemn us but that the world through him might be saved like simon i understand but all of a sudden you see it for the first time jesus can see through you you are vulnerable in his presence (laughs) holy cow He says, Lord, away from me, I'm a sinful man. To which Jesus says, at the end of verse 10, he's going to say, don't be afraid. Now, before he says that, in the boat, Simon's on his knees, Lord, away from me. The sound of the fish has come up, and check out what happens in verse 9. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken, so were James and John sons of zebedee simon's partners sons of thunder can you imagine the conversation simon's on his knees he gets it immediately the other guys what what conversation what laughter what joy what language maybe i don't know they're fishermen what a moment on the boat i mean are you kidding me you got to get in the boat for a minute You're out on the boat, what a vulnerable place to be, and now you're starting to sink, and you have never before seen this kind of thing before, ever. They're astonished and marveled at what they see. Why not? Absolutely. There is laughter. There's got to be. There's astonishment, there's just wonder, there's conversation, there's laughter, there's joy, there's experience of just coming out of the heart. You've got to be kidding me, look at all these fish. I've never seen, you ever seen this? I've never seen this. Fishing for 30 years, never seen this. My grandpa told me one time, but that, no way, this is amazing, we never... They're in this moment being astonished and blown away. And Jesus says to Simon at the end of verse 10, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Because this is the point of the entire story. Simon, I brought you out here to tell you, from now on, you're going to catch men. And I'm going to invite your friends to come follow me. And look what happens next in verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Imagine that. They pulled the biggest payload ever in the history of fishermanhood up on shore, and they leave it there. They walk away from the nets, and if they don't wash the nets, that day they will rot and they will be out of a job. They leave it there. They walk, and they follow. Follow him. Where is he going? I don't know. But think about this for a minute. If you were there, and if you were in the boat, what would you do? And I would argue that you would do the only reasonable thing to do, which is exactly what the disciples did. Did. It only makes sense to leave it and follow him. Someone who can do that? Is this even a conversation? It is no loss to leave this behind if I can follow him. The most reasonable thing to do in that moment, is to abandon everything and follow Jesus. It's just not a discussion. If you were there, if you're one of the fishermen or fisher ladies, you're not going to sit around like, I don't know what we should do. That was pretty amazing. I've never seen that before, but boy. I don't know. I mean, I know that you know, it's daytime. No one fishes at daytime, and we were just out. And you know, but I'm just not convinced. I'm not convinced? Gotta be kidding! It's the the only reasonable thing to do is to follow. Now, here's here's the thing: when Jesus invites his disciples to him, he doesn't invite them first of all to believe, but first of all to follow. Let me say that again. When Jesus invites people to him, he doesn't even invite them, first of all, to believe, but first of all, to follow. Believing may come or it may not come, but Jesus' invitation to his earliest followers is simply to follow. Just just follow me. In other words, there's some of us who think, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus after I get all of my questions answered. I'm not ready yet to follow until my questions are answered. Can you imagine one of the fishermen in this moment being like, hey, Jesus, hold on, I have a question about creation. Can we talk for a minute about what Moses meant in Genesis 1? Ask the question as you follow. Along the way, ask the questions. Right now, he's leaving, you better follow Jesus' call on all of us is an invitation. First, just, just follow. You got questions? Bring them with you. But just don't walk away from me. Like Follow. Ask him. What does it mean to follow? Here's what Jesus says, and we see, the, we see Matthew writing this here. He says, when Jesus talks, this is what Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, Set aside my self-interest and just follow Jesus. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so what's Jesus saying? He's saying, take that self-leadership of your life, the desire that we all have to protect ourselves, to think about ourselves, to put ourselves and our family, take all that and submit that to me submit that to me deny yourself and then take up the cross of that there's going to be weight with and difficulty with always submitting your pride and your will to god and follow me because here's what we know we all follow something we know that you might follow your your heart you might follow your passions you might follow the money You might follow a desire for a greater reputation. You might follow a desire for greater success. You might want everybody to like you around you. You may want to dress just right so people think you're cool or whatever. You may be in a situation where you just want to be making the best business decisions that you can for the sake of you and your company and your future. I understand all that. I I get all that. But we all follow something. Something leads us along. And I'm going to tell you that I can't trust that my leadership of my own life will ever be even halfway as adequate as following someone who does something that Jesus did. But not only catching tons of fish, but predicting his own death and resurrection and pulling that off. We all follow something, which is why I make the case the most reasonable thing to do is to abandon everything and follow Jesus. The most reasonable thing to do is to abandon everything and follow Jesus. What do I mean by that? I'm not suggesting you go home and sell all your things, although maybe we should sell some of our things. When I say abandon everything I mean abandon the self leadership of your life. Abandon the self drive of this is what I need to do. Let me push down on this just for one practical application. Imagine what your day would be like or your week would be like or the season of your life would be like if you started every day with a simple prayer to God and says God today i want to submit my will to yours god today i want to put my interest under yours today god i want you to help me and i'm going to think through my day god help me help me when i go to school to love my neighbor like you tell me i should even those who are most outcast, the most socially awkward. Help me to love them like I should. I'm not going to want to, God. I know I'm going to need your help. Help me with that. God, when I go to work, I'm going to need you to help me remember it's not all about the money. I I need you to help me remember that because my heart goes there. Like, I want to make more. I want the business more successful. I want that, God. Help me to remember what it really is about, to love you and to love you. Like, help me remember that, God. Today, I'm interacting with my family. I am struggling deeply with that relationship. It is hard. God, I'm going to need you to remind me that I should forgive 70 times 7 because today I don't feel like doing that, but I need to submit my will to yours. God, help me today with that. Help me today with my spouse. We are distant, God, and I don't want that. And I know I'm supposed to love like Christ loved the church. I'm supposed to serve like you know, we serve one another and the needs of my own body. Like, I know I'm supposed to do that, but today I can't. God, I need your help that I can lay down my will for yours. Like, help me with that. I I don't really, God, I'm having a problem respecting my parents today. Like, I can't get under what they have to say. I don't think they're relevant. They're not tracking. They don't understand it all. Like, help me with patience. Help me to submit in love with all of this. Like, God, help me today. To put my will under yours. In other words, help me to follow. Even when I can't understand it all. Help me to follow. And I'm just telling you, the most reasonable thing to do is to abandon my self-leadership. Set it aside and follow. Follow. Jesus. Where else can we go for the hope of eternal life? This is why Jesus took Simon out on the boat. And this is his invitation to you and to me. Follow. Follow. Didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus continues on his journey he continues walking from the scene around the Sea of Galilee. And as we will see next week, he encounters somebody, and in that encounter with this person, it changes everything about the way we should see people who are outside of those we are most comfortable with. Powerful, powerful lesson for next week. I invite you back, Friend of Sinners Part five. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to follow you where it is difficult, and where is it difficult? Just about everywhere. Remind us that you have come to give us life, and life to the full, and that is life lived up to the limit of our faith and pushed a little bit beyond. Father, help us to trust you, that you have control of this world. Help us to give to you the conflict in our heart, the struggle to release self-control of our lives, to loosen our grip on our future and to loosen our grip on our family and our business and our relationships a little bit, to just let some of that slide to the side so that we can step into a real faith relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would Help us to see that this does nothing to diminish our passions, but enlivens them for them to become all that they were meant to be inside of us. It gives us life to submit ourselves to you. Because you alone have the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that all of your ways, all of your ways are good. All of your ways are sure that we can trust in you. Give us courage to do that. I would pray in Jesus' name, amen.